First thing, first thing, first thing. Power to the people. Oh, wait a minute. First thing, first thing, first. Power to the people. Oh, my God. I'm like, whoa. And what we usually say when, when someone says power to the people, the response is all power to the people. All right? So I, I, I give you the, the first one. I mean, that's okay because that was practice. All right? But all power means that all power goes to the people, right? Didn't say to the party. Didn't say to the state. It didn't say to the slick talkers and all the other ones. To the people, to the people, to the people. All right? So for me, it's like, that's very anarchistic, you know, to the people. Right? Power to the people. Right on. That's um, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, what I'm going to try to do tonight is talk about our experience in uh, Chiapas. This was last year, though, so this wasn't. This was all before the six declarations, and a lot of the things that's going on with the six declaration. I am still trying to understand. I have not formulated any analysis, any positions. I am just open to what's going on there, and especially hearing people's um, interpretations when they go and come back or the things that I can find on the Internet. I'm trying to understand. But this is still, for me, one of the most exciting struggles that have been going on probably since Spanish Civil War, early days of the Chinese Revolution, early days of maybe even the Cuban and some of the African uh, liberation movements and other third world liberation movements. This is exciting stuff happening here. And it's why it's exciting to me that brings in my past in terms of the Black Panther Party. You know, so I, I think it's important because we're still engaged in this project here of making revolution in the United States. And I smile when I say revolution because I love the word revolution. I just learned to change big R revolution to small R revolution. And I'll probably get into some of that today because for me, that's a big step coming from a time period where revolution meant that there was a particular way that you had to think, organize, fight with a particular plan that led to a particular goal that would look like a particular thing whether we call this socialism, communism, whatever, you know. And to go through so many changes in my own lifetime to being open to learning, to come to the conclusion like the Zapatistas that there are no plans. There are no final plans. There is no big R revolution. There has never really been one that has succeeded. But small revolution means that the small people get to make this revolution happen. They bring in their creativity, they bring in their diversity, coming from different places in life, different experiences, different knowledge bases, means that no one can come and say, well, I got it all. You just got to follow me. You just got to follow our organization. You just got to see our vision. So for me, this Zabatista revolution becomes like what we could have done in the 60s at our height, is what the Zapatistas I see doing now, right? Their vision, their style of working with people, how they draw from their own cultures, 
how they're open to pulling knowledge, information from other areas of the world and all of this stuff. They're, they do. And so I look at things we did in the Panther Party and I said, man, I wish we could have done this. I wish we could have done that. Maybe we wouldn't have lost, you know. Coming from a small black town in New Jersey, Plainfield, New Jersey, um, black power was what pushed a lot of us young people to more radical positions. Before that, the civil rights movement held sway, and it was all about integrating into the empire. A lot of us uh, learning from Malcolm X and looking at some of the other struggles going on in the world was like, why do we want to integrate into a capitalist society that is thoroughly racist, killing us? What is this thing about wanting a piece of the pie? So from them kind of inspirations, we looked for different information. And at the time, it was 1968, May, in France. It was the struggle of the Vietnamese against the, from the French to the United States. The Third World Liberation movements were giving us ideas, new ways to go. And for a lot of us to be exposed to socialism and communism and Marxism, that was really, really great stuff at the time. And for someone like me, who was just like an average high school student, not really great, not really interested in reading, the Black Panther Party found me at a time where it made learning one of the most exciting things in the world, but learning about how to create freedom how to build our own power bases, how to take our lives back in that time period. We did our best. And when I say we did our best, we organized uh, not only our community, but so many different communities were inspired to organize. So it wasn't just us. It was the, the Latino communities, the Asian communities. Workers was doing their things. Women were doing their thing. The anti-war movement was strong. It just seemed like this was a time of possibilities. Anything was possible. We just had to figure out how to come together and do it. The Black Panther Party stood out from a lot of the revolutionary black nationalist groups, is what we called ourselves, was because we was about working with anybody who was down with this idea of revolution, who was down with this idea of liberation for the different communities within the empire. We worked with everyone from poor whites in the Appalachian Mountains to our Puerto Rican neighbors, like if you come from me from New York, New Jersey. We all live side by side. And it, and it made sense that the Puerto Ricans who were fighting for independence of their island, who may have lived in New York and New Jersey, still independence was their objective. And those of us fighting for black power in our communities in the United States, it made sense that we would bond together. And that was happening in different ways and different expressions all over the country. And it was happening in different ways and different expressions all over the world. But one of the things that I do think that happened that weakened us was that it got to a point where we saw that it had to be like one way, one path to revolution. And, then, and that Marxism, Leninism, even maybe Trotskyism and others did play a big part in that, but it was the idea of a scientific revolution. 
that you had to think scientifically, that there was an analysis that if we held to the correct analysis and organized among specific groups that was designated as the only revolutionary class or group that could do this, that would lead us to this final objective of freedom, communism, socialism, wonderful terms, but all was like taking away from these different individuals' struggles on integrity. And what I mean by that is that not all of us was really buying into that. It just had to be one way. There was folks that there's Native Americans, indigenous peoples here was like, they didn't want to hear that stuff. Like the indigenous people of Mexico, they like they had their own ways of understanding the world. And they wanted that respected, but I think that one of the mistakes we made is that we was trying to push everybody. One-way revolution, big R revolution. That and what the counterintelligence program was doing, and the counterintelligence program was merely playing on our own weaknesses, on our own uh, contradictions like that, it did what it was supposed to do. It made sure that we fell, that we destroyed ourselves. And it's always better to get the oppressive when it looks like they're destroying themselves by their own hands rather than to have the government, CIA, and others do it. So that's why it always looks better for black hands to shoot Malcolm X rather than some white FBI, some white police, you know, because it, it affects us more in our spirits when it seems to happen from our own hands. And they know what they're doing because they have been crushing revolutions all around the world. But what was important for me was to being a part of an experiment in changing the world. It inspired me. It inspired so many other people. So it didn't matter. A lot of this is me in reflection. But in the midst of it, I learned. I was a panther, a field worker, on the ground, organizing. A panther on the ground who brought up believing that niggas ain't Shit. Niggas will never organize. They will never unite. Never, 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 never do anything positive. Now here comes the Panthers who got programs with black people feeding black children, black people providing clothing for black people. Or anybody actually in that neighborhood area was getting fed, whether you was black, white, you know, of color. Didn't matter. Free clinics. Right? Liberation schools. And the whole idea was that we could do for ourselves. To live it and to take those kind of risks where you are actually serving each other destroys all the myths that you were brought up on. You know? So no longer was it niggas ain't shit. We are black people. We are people of African descent. Africa is our roots. Black is beautiful. That was heady stuff. That was stuff that was not only cleansing us, but it was giving us a nurturing that made us feel like nothing was impossible. But again, FBI, counterintelligence program, the local police departments, people's fears in your community, the media's role into just shaping people's thoughts all played a part into frustrating our efforts to keep this revolution building, building, and building. So by 1970, 74, maybe the early 70s, for all intents and purposes, there were no more revolutionary movements. They were on decline, which meant that a lot of us 
might have been on the run or just trying to hold together the movement from an underground position. And I was one of those who was trying to hold it together from an underground position because at some point I was recruited into the ranks of the Black Liberation Army. Never was the Black Liberation Army a figment of our thoughts. It was very real. It was a part of the Black Liberation Movement. And when we went underground and we took up arms, we were part of a movement, an army that was the same as the Chinese Liberation Army, that was the same as the Tupamaros, that was the same as the, the, uh, the MPLA in uh, uh, Angola. We saw ourselves as developing that armed force within the United States that could protect those of us who are activists in the communities and also to help promote through financial means, whatever our needs were. So that means that, yeah, the banks, we rolled into them banks. Yeah. And we went in there and we made withdrawals. Right? <laughs> we did not call what we did robberies. We, so we didn't say bank robberies. We, we had a fancy term, and I think it was a Marxist term too. We call it expropriations. <laughs> right? And feeling that banks were just those institutions that sucked the blood of people, and that's how they got their money. So we was just getting monies that came from us some other way anyhow. The whole thing was to put it back into the movement. And that's what we did. Dope dealers got the same thing. We was that force, like especially in Harlem, in Harlem and in parts of Newark, where we hit the dope dealers. And, and I'm, I'm going to, I don't want to get too far into this, but the, the point that I want to show you is that dope dealers felt our sting because we took their drugs, we destroyed their drugs, we took their monies, and the monies also went into programs in the communities. We understood that even as guerrillas, urban guerrillas in, in America and the United States, we had to help fund ourselves. We were not waiting for OSI and that guy, what's the guy's name? Osaurus, George Soros, to fund our revolution. There was not a movement that was, had any kind of success that did not find ways of funding themselves. But you had to have a certain daringness to do that. And I think one of the successes of the Black Panther Party is that it reached into our societies and got those groups of people who had that kind of daringness. That was that lumpen proletariat, as we called it, right? That was people who had already been in a kind of combative relationship with society. That gave the Black Panther Party so many advantages because you had people who didn't work or didn't do any work that had any meaningful part in uh, production, but who were willing to learn because they was on the bottom. They were willing to like break out of old role models that said we couldn't do anything. And into the organizational arms of the Black Panther Party, we found ourselves doing stuff that we never thought we could do. People started coming to us, wanting to join, wanting to support, created uh, such a concern for the FBI that they declared us public enemy number one. But that's what it's supposed to do when people are effectively organizing anywhere. But it's got to be as a result of the work that we do. When people start pulling others out of the system, out of the system's ways of thinking, of course the system is going to get concerned and it's going to throw all its forces into disrupting that. And it did that with us. But I think that partly, not only because of the rigidness of some of the ideas that we took, 
but because we were young and inexperienced, and they were very experienced in what they did. So we were amongst other groups that were destroyed. After that, a lot of us went to prison. Some had to leave the country and go into exile. Many were killed. But even more, just their lives were destroyed. Who even to this day, some who are still alive are just like walking dead because they done lost their minds, you know, or, or they uh, went to drugs or alcohol to just dull the pain, you know, all of that stuff. But those of us who went to prison, we kept on reading and kept on reading and we kept on analyzing, kept on looking at our struggles from different lenses. Like for me, for example, when I went to prison, I started reading radical psychology. I started reading uh, feminism. I started reading um, Eric Fromm and um, Marcuse and people from the Frankfurt School, people I ain't never even heard of before, but they were giving me different ways to look at what had just happened with our struggle. All of that was leading me to try to find different forms that we might struggle that may give us uh, a better chance at developing, that maybe we wouldn't create the same problems that we had made in the past. How do we get away from hierarchy? How do we uh, create organizations that don't silence women, you know, that ain't shutting out those who are queer? All right, or the age is stuff that goes on because we was all young. We didn't even want to deal with nobody over 30, 35. You know, even today it seems like it's just a reverse is that the older ones don't want to deal with young people, you know. But it was like, how can we create an organization that somehow reflect the kind of society that we want and continually build, continually find ways to sustain ourselves so that we can eventually take back chunks and chunks and chunks of our lives. Coming out of prison, you come out with all these ideas. But one of the things about coming out of prison is that you're coming back into like a vacuum. I was in from 80, uh, 74 to 86. In that time period, it seemed like people didn't even know about the Panthers, didn't know about the Weather Underground, didn't know about the anti-war movement, the women's movement, the Native Americans, the Chicano struggles, the Puerto Rican independence movement, didn't know. And, and you get a sense that this system was very effective in seemingly re erasing all of this knowledge. So we walk around, we're out here now, and there's not much organizing going. What can we do for the political prisoners, those who are still in? Not much going on. My spirits would be up, sometimes down, up, sometimes down. Through the 80s, the rest of the 80s, I did things for political prisoners with just a few handful that was also doing it. All right, here comes the 90s. People from the uh, Panthers from the West Coast, Panthers from the East Coast, finally started talking again. And we came across an idea that we want to put out the newspaper. So the early 90s was this effort of Panthers from East and West Coast getting together and we got a newspaper. Young people see the newspaper and they want to know about the Panthers. Now we got a Black Panther collective and other people was forming other organizations. Sometimes it did well, sometimes it didn't. Spirits go up, spirits go down. For several years, my spirits was like, oh, man, I wonder if we're going to do this, you know. Then 1994, January 1st happens. It's like a blast from out of nowhere. 
some people, some brown people in southeastern mountains of Mexico just had an uprising. They just took over all this land. They just kicked out the Mexican police, kept out the military, and did it in such a flamboyant way. It was like, whoa. If these people can do this and not have all the resources and technologies that we have here and always claiming we ain't got no money, we, we can't do this, can't do that, and they have found a way to take back their lives, then revolution is back on the agenda, you know? And then the more you find out about them, you get into more of their thinkings. Find out more. Yeah, you find out more about Marcos, but you get more into their thinking and how they're viewing things. Why is this guerrilla organization not fighting to capture state power? Why is this guerrilla organization armed, doing things that don't seem to focus so much on their guns, but it's clear that they're not putting their guns down? Different from the Tupamaros, different from a lot of the other uh, guerrilla organizations, whether it's the, the Red Brigades or whatever. For me, it was exciting because I know that our attempts to use guerrilla warfare to aid the community movements wasn't really effective, right? I know also that groups' efforts to come up with the grand solutions wasn't really the way to go. So now here are these Zapatistas saying, it ain't really about the grand solutions, it's not really about the gun, but we, had, we knew that in the, in, the, in the days of the 60s, too, because we always said politics and command, but we, I think we kind of lost sight of that. So here was a group saying, we have a vision that comes from our sense of dignity, and they put this thing about dignity in the core of their thinking, and it made me think back to like the 60s, like the early 60s and the, uh, up to the late 60s. A lot of the black groups would talk about dignity. And maybe we got away from something when that started changing. And then we started talking about the more scientific concepts, right? <laughs> but to believe that all you need to be free should be grounded in your sense of dignity. What makes for a dignified life? It was simple but it was like fantastic, you know. So we read more and all the stuff we could get. I went the first time with a couple of uh, uh, anarchists from uh, uh, ABC, Anarchist Black Cross Bronx, the Bronx, and they were taking medical supplies to the Zapatistas. And they knew I was excited about the Zapatistas, so I was like, Ashanti, do you want to go to Mexico with us? I'm like, yo, I ain't got no money. I'd like to go, but, you know. And they say, okay, don't worry about it. We'll raise some money. Now, at first, I'm like, oh, okay. But when they finally got the tickets, I was actually scared. Because I didn't, I didn't really think this was going to happen. Then, it's going to be the first time I'm, I'm going to be outside of the country. But I'm like, ain't no way I'm turning this down. So we go. And we go to San Cristobal. And then from there, we, most of our time was in La Realidad. Even the name was like blowing my mind. The reality. This is their territory. They have named it and claimed it. And who could not come in? The police, the army, the corporations. My mind would go immediately back to the United States. Right? And I'm like, why can't we do that? 
All right, so we're not going to do it in no mountainous rural area because we don't have that. But it's about autonomy. Autonomy is applicable anywhere. It would be our responsibility to figure out how to apply it in the United States, in a Brooklyn, in a Harlem, and in Oakland. You know, that would be our responsibility. So it's like, I'm here, I'm going to learn as much as I can. We had a chance, I'm glad there was interpreters because my Spanish was very, very small. But it was such a great learning experience for me because it, it solidified so many things I had been questioning myself about. Can a struggle happen in a way that makes itself open to different ideas that demands the respect of not only diversity, but everyone coming into this diversity. Here are people that even spoke different languages, indigenous people that spoke different languages, but created a space where they could work that stuff out and come to some common visions. It made me think about, uh, I think it's 1970, uh, the Revolutionary People's Constitutional Convention with the, that the Panthers kind of initiated which brought together so many of the different groups within the United States with the objective of writing a new constitution. The Zapatistas was like doing this. And diversity became not a negative thing, but it became this really positive thing. Automatically, I'm thinking, in the United States, we got so many differences that, are, that we make negative. There are so many groups that just want to vie for leadership. Here's the Zapatistas, the hottest thing going in the society that created space and say, this space is for all those who are oppressed for us to come into to try to figure out what's the next step. That blew my mind, right? They said, uh, walking, we ask, right? That blew my mind. It was almost like, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't even know how to say it like this. Um, you know, you go into the, a, a Chinese restaurant, you get the fortune cookies, and you open them up, and it has this little saying. Sometimes it's very profound. And they were saying this stuff that is, like, very profound, but so fucking simple. We do not have a way of figuring out this revolution beforehand. Walking, we'll ask questions. We'll turn to each other for the first time with some humility and say, what do you know? What do you know? Let's put it on the table. Let's raise some questions. With the Zapatistas, the questions become more important than whatever your so-called factual stuff is, right? Create a world where many worlds can fit. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> the United States, how can we do it? You've got indigenous nations right in the United States, Right? you got black folks who identify with a concept called black nation. you got uh, Chicanos who identify with Aslan. you got workers who want dignified lives that really come down to meaning that they should be only con controlling the means of their production or whatever they work in and trying to figure out how to fit that into a whole new social scheme that can serve everybody. You know, you got queer folks who are trying to create a world that's for them, with them, and, in, and involved with all other kind of worlds. I'm like, damn. And, and, and it, mean, it meant for me getting involved with this that I had to interact with a lot 
of new people. And every interaction was a new lesson. But that seemed to be the whole idea of the Zapatistas. Everything should be a new lesson. Everything should be a way to like see another piece of the puzzle to clear out some of the confusion or the smoke around here and there and try to create some kind of mechanisms where you can get another piece of your life back, where you can take control of another piece of your life. For me, it became one of the most important struggles that I, I just glad that being alive now, I thought the 60s was that period where I used to always say it was the greatest period that ever existed in this country. But I'm convinced that now is that period because it's not only the Zapatistas, you got all of the kind of struggles that's going on in the world, and even right here, of people trying different ways of doing uh, uh, different activities to take back their lives, to think differently. Coming up with new concepts, like I'm, a, I'm one of them who like a lot of postmodernist stuff. But me trying to read that stuff, man, was like, oh. I would go get the dictionary, the standard Webster stuff, and none of the words would even exist in the dictionary. <laughs> you know. So now the next thing I got to do is Google, because I love the fact that I love Googling. It's the only thing that probably keeps me on the computer. But now I'm understanding so many more concepts, like hegemony territorialization and deterritorialization. And at first I'm like, why the fuck do they got to use these big words when I'm sure there's some simple words to do it. But in trying and me pushing it, because that's the exciting thing for me. If I don't know, I got to do some digging. But the, a lot of the reason why I'm trying to get this is because I also was trying to understand more of the Zapatista struggle and a lot of these other struggles going on around the world and what the radical academics were saying about them and then what we were saying about them on the grassroots. And some of the radical academics, the radical postmodernists, was trying to make that bridge between them and us to make that stuff more understandable. And that tends to be the stuff that I would drift towards. But it made me realize that the, the concepts that we used in the 60s and the 70s, stuff ain't work no more, right? The ways that we thought about raising consciousness, that stuff didn't work no more. Handing a flyer to somebody, you know, saying, come to this meeting, come to this rally, come to this talk, you know. The struggle takes more than that. Because you're talking to real human beings, you know. And that was that thing, again, that brought me back to what the Zapatistas were saying about dignity. Us realizing that we're all human beings. And, and what does that mean? That means that human beings can think, they feel, they have dreams, they have desires, they have fears. You know, let's figure out ways to deal with this whole person now. And not just this political actor who's just supposed to come to the organization, unite with you, and all this other stuff. So in these Zapatista communities, when we would go, you get to see and practice how people are living their autonomy. You get to see how they're living this new kind of small R revolution. This last time we went, um, we would go to, say, Oventique which is one of the autonomous municipalities. It's like, kind of like the administrative area. And it's regular folks from these communities who may sit on the junta. 
And when we first heard the word junta, you automatically assume that this the junta is like the military dictators. But then somebody says, no, just deal with the, the definition of the word. You know, the junta that we're used to is what the United States has always supported, and we thought that that was the definition. But it's just an assembly of people. And you go in here and you sit before uh, the Zapatista community, the, the hunter in particular, and you're looking at the folks and they're regular people, right? Except that they all have notebooks and pens and they're taking copious notes of everything that we're saying, the whole conversation. And the reason they're doing that is because during this two-week term, two- or three-week term that they're going to be on the hunter. They want to make sure they understand what is being communicated. They're making sure that they uh, jot down any decisions that's made so that when their term is over and the next crew comes on, they can look at the notes and see what went on before. And this was this thing they was calling this rotating leadership. And I'm like, man, that's all the stuff I would read in anarchism. They, ain't, they don't even call themselves anarchists, but they're doing this stuff in practice. They do not get caught up in the terms. I'm like, right on because their lives is in this position where they must figure out ways of making decisions, of sustaining themselves, of being a part, of participating. And the Zapatistas want everyone to participate. So people come on here who have never been in a leadership position before, and now here they are trying their hands. It's got to be not only scary for them in a way, but it's got to be a wonderful experience for them, too, to see that it wasn't always the leadership thing that terrifying anyhow. Participation is really a doable. But the more people who participate and get this experience, the less likely it is that this particular struggle can be reversed. Because to get a feeling of what autonomy is like, what it means to have that power in your hands for communities, for yourselves, that's some really, it's some really great stuff. I come right back to my thinking of the United States. It made me think of groups that are already exercising that kind of autonomy in the different communities I've been in, but it also showed me that we could bring lessons like that back home. How could I bring that to a Harlem that's being gentrified? My first thing would be just to look for those folks in the community who are already practicing some form of autonomy. Don't even know the word. Don't even care about the word, but already in their communities, whether it's uh, how to protect their, their neighborhood, how to take care of each other's children, you know, how they're feeding it, how they're making ends meet when the money runs out from the public assistance. They just need to see that that is it. That is at a beginning. And to make this thing work to liberate all of your lives, just think about how it can begin to expand. You know. And that's the things that I would learn when we went to the different communities, Zapatista communities, is that you start simple. You start small. You start with what you know and what you already do. You don't really even have to from people coming from the outside, create something different. There's a lot of stuff going on right now, right in people's lives, and you're just trying to get them to see that you already got control. Figure out how to get more. 
And, and critical resistance in New York, we, we're, we're pushing this thing called a harm-free zone, which is basically we want people to stop dealing, dialing 911, right, if there's an issue in the community, a fight, you know, uh, domestic violence, women feeling that their, you know, their bodies are endangered, you know, and there may be high incidence of rape. Where can we set up things where they feel the safety, they can go? In case they feel like that. We want people to see that. Even something simple like that. Kids are fighting in the street. Intervene. And if the intervention is scary, then figure out how to do it in community with other people so that even though scary, you'll take the step anyhow. And you'll see that it gets easier. Just like learning to swim or any other thing. You might be afraid at first, but, you know, we can still do it. The fear doesn't have to stop us. And it made me also ask in the Zapatista communities, of folks who I, who I sensed were veterans, how was it in the beginning? How was it when you first started? And it's usually the same stories. People are afraid. People are scared. And the only way they was able to help people to overcome was to be a continuing presence there and working with people around particular issues that affected their lives. And their issues are going to be different, right? But the whole key was you start with their issues. And we all know the story like, you know, like now, like when, when the intellectuals who helped to form the Zapatistas came from the universities with all their highfalutin ideas, you know, and they go to indigenous folks, the indigenous folks ain't having it. You know, they don't want to be preached to, they don't want to hear about no Marxist, Leninist, Maoist revolution, organizing the workers. They had their own ideas. So it was like sitting all of them folks down from Marcos and others and saying, yo, chill with that stuff. You know, it's not that we oppose, but we've been living here for generations. We've been sizing up our world and our worlds for generations. We know how to do this. We know how to size up that. If you got something to offer, let's sit down as equals. But don't talk to us like we're idiots. You know, which is what we tended to do even in the 60s, 70s. And groups still do, believe it or not, to this day. It's unbelievable that a group will come today with a whole revolutionary thing worked out in their head. And they just stand around you and, like, join my organization. You know, this is the plan. This is the way to do it. Organize the workers. You know. Zapatistas is like a coming together of folks of different knowledges that figured out a way to pull from the strengths of both. So now they can understand this postmodern world that has aspects of pre-postmodern, modern, postmodern, all that stuff, right? I, I'm excited about that stuff, but I can't talk it that good, right? It's, all, it's, it's difficult. But it helped me to understand that we should not be trying to destroy other folks who we feel like because they think different, and they're not scientific that they need to be changed, and our goal is to change them, you know. This Zapatista revolution was something that was pulling together so many strings for me around so many questions that I had to why we could not carry ours in the 60s and the 70s. They was giving me ways to go and then to be able to find others. You know, and the first time I went was, was with the two, two white women from um, the ABC Bronx. The second time I found out about Estacion Libre. And Estacion Libre was a group that 
two individuals went down there and their experience down there, they met with some racism in terms of a lot of the folks going was white folks, white activists. And some of the same things they experienced here, they was experiencing down there. And so they wanted to get away from that space and at the same time create a space where folks of color could like go and be able to interact on their own without having to deal with the racism of the group that's taking you, you know. So they got together, two individuals, just like the Black Panther Party, Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale, two individuals get together and create something. And the reason I'm pointing out the two individuals, because that's how things start. Some, there's always a question, well, how can we do this today or how do we do that? Two individuals get together, talk, figure out what you can do, but you got to come together. There's nobody that's going to come and lay the answers down in your lap. Figure that shit out, you know. That's what they did. Because to this day, one of the things that stands out about the, the Zapatista struggle is its Mayan base and its openness to other ideas, you know. But it's definitely a Mayan-based struggle, you know. And it was great for me that these Mayans are brown people, you know. Because, like, for me, uh, people of color in the United States, we are still battered every day. We still got to deal every day with a bombardment of negative messages about who we are. And, and even the best of us sometimes have doubts about what we can do as individuals and as peoples. You know, and there's things you got to do every day to kind of keep your spirits up, keep your sense of who you are together. But I love the fact that the Zapatistas' concern is power being with people, that they decide how to do this, you know, and it, and it is a really great thing. So we can figure it out as we go, but I, I think for me it's obvious that those ways we've tried to do it in the past have never worked, never worked. They ain't been a successful revolution, I feel, to this day. Russian, Cuban, Chinese, I got in a big respect for the Cuban people and even big respect for Fidel, right? But it's like Mao and them all did the same thing. They became the new oppressors, you know? All that stuff changed. The rhetoric stayed the same, but... One of the things I think the Zapatistas show is that Nonviolent struggle is still a doable. They just don't make it the be-all, end-all. But it's like here, and everything draws me back here because I watch them, right? They use nonviolent struggle effectively in combination with being an armed group, right? And it makes me think here, like here we have not even used the tip of that iceberg of nonviolent struggle, all the things we can do. If you read Gene Sharp and all these other things, we ain't even got creative with that. We just do basically the same two or three things, you know. But, I mean, even Gene Sharp, I mean, his stuff was about how to, like, take over your lives, whether it's city blocks, neighborhoods, whatever. And, and that's what, like, the Zapatistas showed me is that even if it was a group like the Black Panthers and the Black Liberation Army, you know, we could have played more of an effective role in promoting so many different forms of struggle. We got to the point where if you wasn't ready to pick up the gun, you wasn't even a real revolutionary, right? 
But you see them women, where's the women when they pushed out the, the soldiers? In Polo? Yeah, you, you, you see the Zapatista women, right? They, like the soldiers is in the, in the, in the, in the community, and, they, and they, they want their community back. And they are just physically pushing these soldiers out, you know? I'm like, that takes so much courage, but it's creative too, you know? And I'm like, damn, can we do something like that here? I always want to, con- I always want to confront them, right? And, and really a lot of my wanting to confront and that's just the police and them, right? Because we got so much fear of just these frontline troops. So much fear, you know? And sometimes just eyeball to eyeball, looking at them is, takes a, a lot of courage. But it's a step into even daring to think that we could really push them out of our neighborhoods in all kind of ways, just keep them out, you know? And, and so for me... I'm always um, a proponent of people arming their struggles, their communities, because I know, as far as I'm convinced, that's always going to be a necessity. But it's like you begin to realize it takes many forms of struggles. That's why I like the, the whole thing, like with, the, with a lot of the anarchist-influenced struggles here, you know, we, from the convergences to the... Um, to the spokes, uh, uh, spokes councils, all these other things like diversity of tactics and all this other stuff. It's like we figure out ways of like carrying these struggles in ways that we really think they need to be carried out, you know. And don't nobody come tell me that I cannot defend my community by any means necessary. I'm not going to tell you that you can't block that bridge. You know, but maybe we, you, we can figure out a way you can block the bridge at the same time I want to take over my community. We might can make that shit work, you know. How can we work our stuff, you know, understanding that this system still is not going to allow us to do shit that's going to threaten this power. But we want to live, you know. As dangerous as it is to take that step and say, I'm going to confront these people with all their new technology, their their terrifying weapons like Huey also says you know the spirit of the people is greater than man's technology you know um, I do believe that you know the people can defeat the most ferocious monster in the world we can do this we just need to really see how much is available to us in terms of the fight back In, uh, with Zapatistas, um, one of the things that's very prevalent in, in Mexico is uh, the self-hate of the indigenous people. There's a lot of people who deny their indigenous blood. Uh, the two most famous sayings you hear is that no seas tan indio. No seas un indio descalzo. Don't be so Indian. Don't be a barefooted Indian. How do the Zapatistas uh, uh, try to change that mindset from the Mexican people who deny their indigenous blood and, and refuse to be... Uh, how would I say, the, the indigenous people coming back to where they were, you know, the caretakers of that land. And I'm sure that was part of the Black Panthers too, yeah. the self-hate. I, I, can tell you, I can tell you one of the things, um, like, like Panthers, I think that the fact that um, we knew we was going to have confrontations even coming in. I came into the Black Panther Party um, at a time where it was just before the split in the Black Panther Party, so 1970, 71. There was, there was Panthers that had already been driven under, underground, exile. There was 
shootouts, people died on both sides. Yet here I am coming 16, 17 years old. Um, but it's like it was easier because Plainfield, New Jersey, was one of them where the police is always a presence, always fucking with you. You're always in combat, you know, which so many people came into the Panther Party, party in a certain way were combat ready. One of my comrades in the, in the, in the BLA, in, in the cell that I was in, Vietnam veteran, already combat ready. But then now you have, like, like this particular one I'm talking about, just, I had never, my thing, just to back up a little, I was a burglar, <laughs> right? And even coming into the Panther Party, I used the burglary skills, me and my, my closest comrade, to, we broke into to the white communities outside of Plainfield, we call us, you know, Robin Hood stuff. You break in, you get stuff, you take it to the fence, you get money, you go get the food, and now your lunch program for the kids. One of them, you know, we got popped and stuff and, and all like that. But that's some of the things we did. Going underground was the first time I was going to be introduced to weapons, right? And it's having that comrade that was a Vietnam veteran by my side that gave me the courage, even when I was scared, to do some of the things that we had to do. You know, but it was the same like when I was just a, a Panther Party field worker. You, you know, you got somebody with you who's a little bit more experienced and they help to walk you through it, you know, and it becomes easier, you know. And, and I mean, that just seems to work. You know, we are, we've been raised to be terrified of the powers that be. So how do we break some of that down? We got to figure out ways and all kind of ways to like confront confront, you know, and, and sometimes it's just simple. Like Fanon would talk about, um, I think this is in his section of Wretched of the Earth on Violence, and it was a whole thing about to kill the colonizer, freeze the colonized. For, for me, I mean, it can happen in many different ways. To even look your oppressor, your colonizer in the eyes, freeze you. Because, you know, the whole thing, even with, with black people, it was, it's, it was hard, even to this day, it's hard for a lot of us to look a white person in the eyes without the tendency to put your head down. Now, you imagine the 60s. This was just before black power, black is beautiful. After that, you know, you had black folks going up to white cops, smacking them in the face. <laughs> you know, it was a different time. Um, I, I mean, I think that's sometimes that points to, like, the colonization of activist thinking and who's setting the standards for what's legitimate actions and what's not. And just a, just a small thing, like at the time of the, the, the Black Liberation Army, uh, Weather Underground and others, because so many on the left didn't like what we were doing, played a part in our isolation, you know? I mean, the media, the government, all of them was already on the thing of isolating us. But because you got some problem with the way that we choose to fight back, you are also not going to write about us or not going to write about us accurately, just blot us out or just tell people that we're ultra-leftists or, you know, anarchists, you know. And a lot of us wouldn't even accept the term anarchism back then, right? Um, but it's like you play a part, you know, you play a part, just like in Seattle when some folks was trying to catch those breaking the windows of, what's the coffee place? Starbucks. Starbucks. And what, you going to hold them for the police? <laughs> you know, 
And I mean, I'd have been all in favor of them getting their ass kicked because that, that's, you don't do that. You know, you don't like what we do. Don't fuck with them then. You do your thing, but don't be blocking, holding somebody. But those are, I think those are some of the things that, uh, that we're going to have to deal with as different movements. You know, that there is going to be, again, at some point, beyond me, I ain't got to be about a part of it, a black liberation army. You know, at this point, there is effectively no black liberation army in a physical sense. But because you got people like me and Asada and others who have given the story, the Black Liberation Army exists in the minds of a whole lot of young people out there. You hear it in their, in their hip-hop and, and their writings and, their, and them making uh, other kind of forms of communication. At some point, there are going to be those who get together and say, we got to take it to the next place, you know. And then you're going to see where others in the movement place themselves in relation to that, you know? How many people was supporting Asada when Asada Shakur first got captured? Was only a few, you know? White movement in general, no. Weather underground, yes. Black nationalist groups, yes, you know? When she got liberated, you know? Same thing, you know? It was like some people still had, a, you know, the nerve to criticize it. You know, but it, like we just like, OK, listen, we're going to get our political prisoners out by any means necessary. That's it. If you don't know why, try to consider what our lives is like in your position in relation to us. Don't put your moral standards on us. Don't do none of that stuff. We are fighting for our very lives. It is really war on us, you know, and, and if people can't recognize that, we ain't got time to to get into the debates and all the other stuff. And believe me, it's not romantic. Yeah, it's not romantic to take a position of armed struggle. It's not romantic to go underground. It is not romantic to see your comrade get shot, die right in front of you. That stuff is not romantic. What drives us to that point where we feel we got to take this system on, take the war to them, you know? It ain't just like frustration and we're just irrational. We have thought about it. We have felt it. We have waited. You think about the fact that you ain't never going to see your family again, but it's for your family. You think about the fact that you want to see your children grow up, but you know that your life might end in the next six months, the next year, or whatever. You might go to prison. And a lot of us ain't, you know, I mean, a lot of us felt like 20, we was either going to be dead or in prison. You know, but we're going to give it our best shot. 